Hello, Richard Lane here with the Lancet podcast for the issue February the 24th to March the 2nd. Three randomised trials now provide firm evidence that the risk of acquiring HIV can be halved by male circumcision. The quote on this week's cover and the subject of this week's podcast. Two research articles, done in Uganda and Kenya respectively, independently show just that, that male circumcision can halve the risk of HIV. Earlier I spoke to one of the authors of a comment commissioned alongside these two important research articles, Till Bernikhausen from the Africa Centre for Health and Population Studies. Yeah, it's basically very firm evidence now that confirms what had been discussed in the field for a long time with regards to cross-sectional studies. I think there were over 30 cross-sectional studies that showed an association at the population level between circumcision and reduced risk of HIV infection or lower HIV prevalences in populations, and also 14 prospective observational studies that weren't randomized controlled trials that showed similar effects. And now the evidence is there. We think that the clinical efficacy is really strong and solidly done by by three large-scale randomized controlled trials in different populations in Africa. And the, the interesting part or what strikes me as very encouraging is that the effect size is very similar across all three trials. That's the Overt and Adrian Purin's trial in Orange Farm in Houting Province here in South Africa and Robert Bailey's trial in Kenya and Ronald Cray's trial in Uganda. All of these three trials, I think, together, each individually is very well done and methodologically sound and analytically sound. So we, clearly we've got a strong, firm platform, if you like, the evidence base in terms of the results of the trials, but there's a difference, isn't there, between what you can establish in a controlled trial setting with the reality of what these results could mean for populations all over the world, but particularly yeah. particularly in Africa. What do we need to know before we can start implementing intervention programs for circumcision? So this is an, an interesting question. I would like to make a small qualifier maybe to the statement that we know about the clinical efficacy before I come back to the to your question which is that we have firm evidence now that there's about a 50 to 60% relative reduction in HIV incidence in circumcised men versus non-circumcised men who engage in heterosexual intercourse. There's still some evidence outstanding with regards to whether or not the partners of these men are protected, and that will, I think, soon, soon we might be wiser with that regard. There is also outstanding evidence whether men who have sex with men would benefit equally, and there may be outstanding evidence whether there's a herd immunity effect. So I think there are more interesting basic epidemiological questions to, to be answered. But that said, the evidence is so firm that men who engage in heterosexual intercourse profit that, that this really raises the question how to take this forward to uh, implementations. And I I think there are basically three main themes that might need to be addressed or the evidence needs to be collected, although there is already a very large evidence base. The first one is acceptability and the cultural appropriateness of um, circumcision. The second one is operationally, who does it, where can it be done, and what technologies are being used to do circumcisions. And also the pre-circumcision counseling, or what do we do with regards to accompanying circumcision rollouts with information and education messages. And thirdly, I think there's also the need for an ethical discourse to broaden the discussion to see are there ethical issues involved. 
Could you elaborate on these three themes, if you like, that are emerging then in, before we can talk about proper yeah. implementation? So with regards to acceptability, I think there is a, a quite a large evidence from surveys out there. A recent review by Westerkamp and Bailey in 2006 re reviewed 13 studies that have been done so far in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, the finding there is that across communities in which circumcision is not traditionally practiced, there is about a 65% willingness amongst non-circumcised men to circumcise. We are located here in rural KwaZulu-Natal in Klabisa district, and there's actually a study from our site that looked in 2005, asked amongst rural Zulu men in Klabisa and Matuba-Tuba whether they would be willing to consider a circumcision, and also asked women for them for their partners. And our local evidence is that about 50% of the men would be willing to circumcise and would also circumcise their sons. And 70% of women would actually favor a circumcised partner and would be willing to have their sons circumcised. So I think the um, acceptability in many communities is good. But it's not perfect. But quite encouraging, though, that it's you're saying that yes. the picture so far is quite encouraging in, in that, there, as you say, there is a majority of a willingness to, to get involved in circumcision. What about the issue about perceived risk reduction and how that might alter sexual behavior? Yeah, so that is one, I think, one of the challenges will be to communicate a public health message with a circumcision. The main challenge is probably to try to eliminate behavioral disinhibition caused by the knowledge that now my personal risk as I'm circumcised is lower than it has been before. And it's logically inconsistent message to, to some extent to say that there is actually a best method, which is condoms or abstinence, if you will. And then there is a second best message, but the second best message does not eliminate the need for actually to use the best method, the best method, which is condoms. It's a similar situation with with regard to microbicides. Should they prove there's still some hope, I think, to be effective to communicate to women that this is a second best and there is actually a first best. The evidence here is a bit is a bit mixed from these randomized controlled trials that are discussed in this issue of of the Lancet. The Uganda trial actually found that there's no behavioral disinhibition amongst the circumcised men. The South African trial that was previously published, not in, in the Lancet, um, actually found some evidence of behavioral disinhibition in Houteng province. As maybe circumcision does become a population prevention effort, this knowledge will accumulate and also there, there must be a learning accompanying how to communicate such a public health message, which somehow is very hard to communicate and has some logical inconsistencies. In in, indeed, and that leads us logically to the next challenge, if you like, and that is operationally how, let's say, is a country like South Africa equipped to, to have the human resources available to implement circumcision programs? Yeah, it's, I think the, the main question will be at what level can it be done safely? And maybe a second related question, can the traditional circumcision practices be integrated in such a potential um, prevention intervention. In these trials, it was basically well-trained physicians who are, who are well-trained in, in performing circumcisions in sterile, in a sense, perfect in environments to do circumcisions. There is some case from the 1970s, a um, 
circumcision campaign in India, where actually it became a non-safe intervention and led to maiming and even death, which in the end stopped the Indian circumcision campaign in the 70s. So it does need to be done properly. And the, the question will be which human resource at the lowest level will still be able to perform safe circumcisions. I would think that a well-trained surgical public health nurse could be trained to perform circumcisions, but that's, that needs to be found, found out. One could almost envisage specialist circumcisors in the routine healthcare system, specialist human resources for health who would perform circumcisions, do them very well, but do only circumcisions and the follow-up and maybe the pre-counseling even. So these are big outstanding operational questions, I think, that do need to be solved. Indeed, but we, but we must remain optimistic because the data are clearly so encouraging in terms of what potentially circumcision could do to reduce transmission. Yes, yeah. Is there also a risk that by implementing circumcision programs, you could be altering people's status or possible stigmatization within communities? Yes, I would imagine that a, an education and information campaign to accompany circumcision really needs to address the point that a circumcision is not somehow perceived as a marker of higher HIV risk versus men who remain uncircumcised. That's also um, a message that needs to reach the community as a whole, not just the men who will eventually circumcise, be, be circumcised. So it needs to yeah, go to the community as, as a whole that circumcision is not a marker for behavior that would give higher risk to HIV infection to some people versus um, uncircumcised people. Till Bernickhausen. That concludes this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.